There it goes. Okay, we've got to start with Psalm 119, verse 161 today. Let's see. We got princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. I've got a couple prayer requests here. Jim. Jim fell. Most of you know that. Broke five ribs, punctured his lung, and uh, cracked his wrist. And uh, right after, uh, you didn't hear about that. Right after he went home and got on a ladder and was cutting some trees. And so he, uh, he's been in the hospital. And this morning, this morning, um, Linda said that they had pulled the tube out of his lung and he's expected to go home tomorrow. So that's where we're at with him right now. Um, got uh, Wade. Everybody knows Wade Nolan that does, he does all the graphics for the church, for the Bible studies. And uh, Wade has a birthday today. So we want to wish him a happy birthday and we'll add him into our prayers for a happy year ahead. And uh, let's see here. Um, Burke is not here. He said he's moving slowly and holding on to things just to stay up. He's got a couple bones that are rubbing bone to bone and it's really painful. So we want to keep him in prayer. And let's see here. Um, Joyce emailed me. She called too, but I was not home when she called, but she's having difficulties in getting to see her mother. There's some family problems going on. They are not letting her in to talk to her mother about Jesus at a uh, uh, care facility. And so she's asking for prayer about that in that particular situation. And it's got to be really distressing. So uh, have them. And I know there's more prayer requests, but it has been just one of those insanely busy weeks where uh, I've had no free time. And so uh, any others, the Lord knows them. And then we've got a list of people that uh, we've been praying for, uh, unsaved in uh, the families of people that have emailed in this person and that person. And so we'll pray for them all cumulatively as well. So we got those uh, things, and then we'll uh, start by reading this day in Christian history. Uh, forget the uh, Calvinistic thing. Uh, we'll just uh, read it. I, I didn't write this devotional, so... It was the uh, first academic presentation of Protestantism in France, and it wasn't well-received. Nicholas Kopp, a professor of medicine and a good friend of 25-year-old John Calvin, a rising theologian, had just been elected rector of the University of Paris on All Saints Day, November 1, 1533. Kopp delivered his inaugural speech to the facility and students assembled at the Chapel of Franciscan Observatines for the opening of the academic year under the guise of the topic Christian philosophy. What Kopp actually delivered was an evangelical sermon, using the first beatitude as his text. He passionately and convincingly stated that forgiveness of sin and eternal life are free gifts of God's grace. Well, free gift, free gift is a redundancy, so we'll just say gifts of God's grace, that cannot be earned by good works. This was a shocking and bold statement by the rector, for this was a Roman Catholic university, and the convocation took place in a Catholic monastery. Never before in French academia had anyone publicly advocated the views of the Reformation. Despite the fact that Cop gave the traditional Catholic salutation to the Virgin Mary, 
something not authorized in Scripture, in his speech, the audience was not fooled. The theology of Luther and Zwingli clearly shone through. The university crowd was in an uproar. The faculty was furious, and the Franciscan monks went immediately to the Parliament of Paris crying heresy. So imagine that. Now, you got somebody that's actually preaching right out of the Bible, and these people are going berserk over it. On December 10, 1533, France I, the King of France, issued orders for the capture of Cup and for the punishment of the person who had warned them to flee. A reward of 300 crowns was offered for the return of Nicholas Cop, dead or alive. He successfully fled to Basel, Switzerland. This incident and similar ones convinced the King of France that Lutheran doctrines were spreading too quickly throughout France. He therefore adopted new, stricter measures to halt the Reformation and persecute its adherents. However, the march of Protestantism was growing and could not be stopped. The Reformers were not afraid to speak their beliefs and fight the system even in the face of persecution and death. Meanwhile, John Calvin also fled Paris in the aftermath of the Cop Affair. Calvin found a safe haven in Angoulême at the home of Louis de Tillet, where he was able to resume his theological studies and writing. In 1575, Theodore Beza, John Calvin's successor in Geneva, published a biography of Calvin in which he suggested that Calvin had actually written Nicholas Cop's infamous speech. A copy of the speech, although missing several pages, was found in Calvin's handwriting among his papers. Whether Calvin wrote part or all of the speech remains an open question, but at least he had strongly influenced Cop. Reflection, why do you think it was so scandalous for Nicholas Kopp to preach that forgiveness of sin and eternal life are free gifts of God's grace? To what extent do you think his audience considered his propositions to be possibly true? What was your initial reaction when you first heard the gospel message? The Lord says, these people say they are mine, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me and their worship of me amounts to nothing more than human laws learned by rote. Because of this, I will do wonders among these hypocrites. I will show that human wisdom is foolish and even the most brilliant people lack understanding. Such is the case with much of the Catholic Church. It's very sad, but um, we had a couple Catholics visiting us this past week who are quite saved. And, uh, you know, I've got a friend that attends a Catholic church out in the uh, Northeast or Northwest, and they don't like him, the uh, pastor of that church, because all he does is preach about Jesus. So, you know, I mean, RCC has got its faults, just like all major denominations do. But there are, uh, what is it, uh, Revelation 3.14, I think. Uh, yet there are those in Sardis who are worthy. They will walk with me dressed in white. And uh, so we have uh, people that are in the, even to this day in the Catholic Church that understand God's grace. So, uh, yes. And they, they still adhere to the Council of Trent. Absolutely they do. And that's when they stop I'm being a, a, a I'm church. I tell any believer to read that Council, Council of Trent. That's their official document. Not only do they call Paul anathema four times in there, they call Jesus anathema one time by doctrine, not by name. Yeah, yeah. But absolutely, Council of Trent, 1546. That's when they stop being an actual Christian church. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to meet in this uh this uh, little church here, and we thank you for the opportunity to uh, stream live now with some people that are attending with us, and also to uh, have the videos available to others, and there are certainly going to be a day when that's no longer going to be the case, because we preach the message of the gospel, and uh, that's offensive to the people of the world. But until that day, we'll continue pressing on in your uh, good grace, and Lord, we uh, pray for the people we mentioned a moment ago and their situations. We pray that uh, your hand will be upon them, and uh, uh, help them to heal properly, to have uh, sound 
affairs in their families, the ability to preach the gospel to their own family members, and so on. Lord, we pray these things that you will be glorified, and we certainly pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before we get into the class today, I've got somebody that uh, is visiting. He's a missionary from England, and uh, he's here for the first time in seven years, and he brought his wife and his uh, child, and uh, they're both here, but I'm going to ask Jonathan to come up and just tell us about himself really quickly before we get into the class. I'm glad to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Charlie. Yeah. Pastor Charlie told me to take 10 minutes, so I'm going to set my timer, or else <laughs> I, I like to talk, but uh, I'll talk fast. Uh, I just want to share my heart for England and for, the, for missions in England. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I went to summer camp in Chattanooga, and the pastor was encouraging all of us to make a decision for the Lord. Uh, first, whether we were saved. And I knew I was saved. My father was the first Christian in my family. He moved to America from the Netherlands. My last name, Vandenherk, is Dutch. And uh, he, he had been told as a, uh, in a Roman Catholic family, if his good works outweighed his bad works, he'd go to heaven. And if not, he'd go to hell. You know, so, but when he heard someone quoting, he, he was invited to a meeting. He thought it was a party, but it was a church meeting like this. And someone quoted Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And he didn't know all the words. He was still learning English. He didn't know what grace meant or saved or faith. But it says, for by grace are you saved through faith, but that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So that phrase, not of works, got his attention because it was the opposite of what the priest had said. So he moved to uh, Hollywood, Florida, after he, uh, he understood the gospel and trusted Christ. And he went to Florida Bible College. And they, they had this theme of making it clear, making it plain to people. And so he did that for me every night in my bed. He made the gospel plain to me. And I trusted Christ when I was just a young boy in Miami, Florida. And I knelt by my bunk bed and asked Christ to, to save me. And But uh, I was saved. But then I the next thing that we were challenged at camp is, have you surrendered? Have you surrendered to the Lord? And I had just played Joseph in the Christmas play at church, so I, and I had to sing I Surrender All. So that thought, I, that thought of surrender was in my mind, and I knelt by the haystack at camp, and I asked Christ to use me. Whatever he wanted me to do, I said, I'll do it. So I got back to my home church, and my pastor said, okay, you can preach this Wednesday night. And I thought, oh, no, I meant when I was older, but, uh, uh, but I'm so thankful for that encouragement that I had to serve the Lord in that way. And so I went to Bible college, and then while I was there, I met a British pastor. And he, uh, I was praying for Europe every Friday with a group of students, so I asked him, well, how can we pray for you? He said, we're starting two churches this summer. And I said, wow, what's that like to start two churches, to start churches in England? And he said, well, why don't you come and find out, young man? You can help us. <laughs> well, I didn't have any money, and I was a poor college student, but... Uh, a couple in the church had built up air miles, and they gave them to me and my friend Justin so we could go. And when I got there, I, that was 15 years ago in 2005. And I, not only did I get to help start those two churches, but I met my best friend, Natalie. And she was a teacher's assistant, so she had the summer off and was helping with all of that. And we got to, uh, we got to see what it was like. And one of the two churches was in Kettering, which is the, where, where Natalie was born. And that's where, John, uh, that's where William Carey had been from. So it really has gone full circle. The man who started, who was the, the founder of modern missions, his town needed 
a, a good gospel preaching church. And there's many places in England like that where the churches have diminished. Uh, sadly, um, even though there's um, still a good, a faithful remnant of Christians there, less than 5% attend regularly any type of church. Some counties is 2%. And so we're thankful that we, we were able to, I went back to England the next year to help start a third church. And then I went back the th a third year uh, to get married. And then uh, I took Natalie, took Natalie with me back to America where we lived for six years in Tennessee. And I worked at my home church and we worked at Chick-fil-A together. And, uh, but Chick-fil-A has a mission statement uh, on the back bulletin board. We see it every day to glorify God in all we do and to be a good steward of whatever God has entrusted us with, and I can't remember it all, to serve the best chicken in the world probably, but um, but that's their mission statement. What is God's mission statement? In Luke chapter 2, at 12 years old, G the Lord Jesus said, I must be about my Father's business. And have we ever realized the urgency of God's business, of to seek and to save that which was lost? And I got that urgency in my heart at 12 years old, and then and then it continued, and, and it, that uh, people encouraged me and fanned the flame. I got to see it for myself, helping start two, two, two new churches. And then after six years in America, we knew we had to go back and help these struggling congregations. So we heard of a church with three people, with no pastor, in Peterborough. And they, they when we got there, they said, you're the answer to our prayers. They were weeping, and so, it was so exciting to, to be part of a, a new uh, restart of a church. It says in Revelation we are to be strengthening the things which remain that are ready to die. So it's not just brand new churches that need to be started, but strengthening those that remain. And so uh, Peterborough is in Cambridgeshire on the edge of the Fens, the Flatlands, and it's right across from Holland. It's the the breadbasket of England, but it's also used to be fertile ground for the gospel. All the nonconformist and um, dissenting preachers used to hide out in the fens from the Catholic Church. And, and, uh, but, but then King James I drained the fens, and it became the breadbasket of England. And it's where all the pilgrims came from 400 years ago, uh, sailing from Boston on the Mayflower. By the way, Boston is another place where we're going to be helping start a new church in the, in the new year, because today it's the murder capital of the U.K., and it needs a good, uh, another good church as well. So please pray for us in the new year. But over the last seven years, we've been able to help that church in Peterborough go from three people up to about 75. Um, we've outgrown the little uh, gospel hall building that we, we've been using. We've had to use a community center. But please pray for us because the community center has been closed since March with, with COVID and everything. And so we're praying for a, a more permanent building and things like that. But it's, we know it's the maturity of the believers that matters more than the numbers or anything like that. And we're thankful for, um, for some God, godly, uh, Christ-like people that have come along through the years. And uh, we have, in that small congregation, we have 20 nations represented. Mm. And so it's a very international place uh, to me. We have people from... Uh, from Portugal, from India, from uh, we have people from uh, Lithuania and Germany and uh, Romania. Lots of Romanians in our in our congregation, and uh, all over the world, Canada, and we're just thankful for the opportunity. And there's a there's four mosques in our city. Uh, our our city has two hundred thousand people, um, and God forbid that people would come all the way from 
places that don't have a clear presentation of the gospel available and come to England, they never hear it there. So we try to get out every week. We go to the city center the, in Cathedral Square, and we pass out thousands of tracts as people because the, the they call pet uh, gasoline's petrol in England. They cost eight dollars a gallon, mm. and so uh, people walk a lot. And so we've been able to pass out lots and lots of gospel leaflets and a gospel table. The Muslims have their free Qurans on one side of the square, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have their. Mm. Um, their their display and the mormons are wandering around so we're thankful that now there's also the gospel being preached there as well um, let me just tell you one quick story we had a man there's so many stories i could tell but there was a man who who uh, came to our church he sat on the third row and i asked him i said uh, have you ever been to church before he said no i've never been and so we always have hot tea after church and by the way my wife's brought some hot tea uh, bags for you to take home. You can pray for England while you drink some hot tea. But, but uh, we um, anyway, we, uh, we the ladies were getting him a cup of tea, and I said, "Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you know for sure you're going to heaven?" And he said, "I think I do." And I said, "Well, that's good." I said, well, "How how do you know? If you don't mind me asking." He said, "Well, I got this this leaflet through my letterbox because we put them through all the letterboxes in the city." And he said, "I did what it said." And he says, uh, "Does that mean I'm a Christian?" And I said, well, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I said, tell me more about it. He said, you might not remember me, but I used to rip up these, these leaflets in the city center, me and my friends. And I ripped one right up right in your face once. But he said, but you were so calm and kind in, in talking to me about Jesus even after that, that when I got it again through the letterbox, I knew that I couldn't rip it up that time. And he said... Uh, so I, I put it on my bedside. I didn't want to open it because I knew it had to change my life. But he said, uh, uh, it's kept staring at me for three weeks. And then he said, then I got leukemia this week. I was diagnosed. And he said, I had to know the answer to that question on the front cover. Are you going to heaven? Hmm. So he said, I opened it and I, and I, I saw I, the Ten Commandments in there. I said, I had broken almost all of them. But he said, then I... Uh, read about how Jesus died for my sins and, it, and forgiveness was a gift and so he said I knelt by my bed and asked Christ to save me and so I'm uh, then he said uh, um, I, I wanted to come to church and find out more about it he was with us for a whole year three times a week mm. he even came with me on Mondays and said I can't believe I used to rip these up and now I'm helping you pass them out to other people and then uh, after that um, his leukemia returned, but his friends were so angry. They all came to his baptism, heard his testimony in his own words, but they started sending us death threats and, oh and threatening to burn the church down and burn our house down and kill my wife if we ever came to the hospital to see him. They did not understand why he changed. They thought we were brainwashing him. And, but, you know, he was full of joy. And when I took him to the Cambridge Hospital to get a bone marrow transplant, he brightened up the whole hospital. And then um, as he was dying, the bone marrow transplant didn't really work. And they, he said, "Can Pastor, I need to say something. I said, what is it, Kevin? And he said, um, I just want you to tell the church I'm, I'm thankful for my cancer. I'm not angry at God because I found, I found God through, mm -hmm. through my cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just so many people just that are available and wanting to know. And, you know, the priests in the temple, they, uh, in Luke chapter 2, they were asleep on the job. They were not giving the gospel. In fact, they were doing their own business. They were buying and selling, and Jesus had to go through with the whip. 
And then he sat down and taught the people, and many people were attentive unto him. But even at 12 years old, he was asking people questions. He was talking to them in the temple, doing what the priests should have been doing. Mm. And, you know, he said, I must be about the Father's business. May we realize there's people waiting and longing to hear this message. All we have to do is get out there and share it with them. I've shared, used up all my time, but I'd love to share, talk to you more. Natalie's got a great testimony. She's the first Christian in her family. So look forward to some, maybe some fellowship with you after. after. Thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity. You betcha. Okay, one thing he did not do, and I do not know his status. He never said anything to me about it in the email when he emailed me yesterday, but uh, I would assume that he has a need for support as a missionary and as a pastor in England. I don't know that. I'm just uh, speculating on that, and he didn't bring it up. So if you want to know more, if you're attending online and you want to know more, uh, send me an email. I'll get you in touch with him. You can help him out in that regard. Or if you're in England, because as I was telling him, we got quite a few people in England uh, that attend online. I was talking about a couple of them that live south of London. He lives north and east of London. And so uh, anyway, he will be going south of London, he said. And so my friends that I was referring to may be able to hook up with him for, you know, a little fellowship. But uh, please keep me posted if you want to contact him. And uh, uh, we'll uh, try to hook up Jonathan with you and his wife and child. So there you go with that. Praise the Lord. And what he said is, we need to be about the Father's business. Well, I was sitting here waiting for the first person to show up today. I was sitting here and just, I don't even remember what I was doing, but I looked at my hand. It was kind of folded over, and I said, man, that looks old. And, you know, it's getting fat, and it's all got scars all over it, and I'm starting to get those spots that old folks get. And um, I, I suddenly dawned on me that I'm 56 years old, okay? And uh, I still feel like I'm in high school. You know, my, my head, my, my attitude, I feel like it was just yesterday. But it suddenly dawned on me that with very few exceptions, maybe a handful in the whole world, every single person that was 56 years old on the day I was born is now dead. We need to get about the Father's business. That's exactly what my thought was. And so that's why we're, we're getting into the Bible again. Uh, we need to get doctrine into people's head. Uh, he noted that uh, you need to be saved. And then after that, you need to surrender. But surrendering involves not just, you know, giving your, your life to Christ and doing something. It involves obtaining doctrine. Because without doctrine, you're just, as Paul would say, a ship on the water being tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning deceitfulness of men in there. I, I'm going to misquote the verse. So anyway, uh, uh, we need to have doctrine. And that's what we do on Thursday nights. And we are starting in Galatians chapter 5. It's been, uh, we've been in Galatians now for at least two weeks, and uh, so it's nice to get into chapter five finally. Uh, that was a joke. Um, it's been a little longer than two weeks, but here we go. We're in Galatians five. We do not have Jim here to read for us. Uh, uh, if he was here, he'd probably be moaning instead of reading. Uh, you know, our hearts go out to him because, uh, uh, I, you know, breaking all those ribs has just got to be painful, and I bet he's just as bruised and battered as he can be. But uh, Galatians five. Chapter or verse one, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Um, just for the people that have never been to a Bible class here before, uh, I want to make sure that you understand that all of these are from my commentary. I write one verse of commentary every day, I've been doing it for many, many years. 
And uh, so it took, you know, I don't know how long, uh, 104 verses maybe in Galatians. So it took half a year or whatever to get through that. But I read from my commentary rather than just saying things off the top of my head because uh, I don't want to uh, interfere with, uh, uh, you know, having my weird thoughts just pop into my head and say something that shouldn't be there. But we do get into some nice rabbit trails in this class. Uh, however, um, uh you know, I, I try to stick to the notes as much as possible. So uh, I read the verse. Paul begins chapter five with a summary. Oh, one more thing before I start. I need to leave here at 520. So I'm going to close early. Uh, stop 520. I've got to be somewhere at 525 to pick something up. So um, I'm sorry, 620. I said, yeah, duh. Uh, it, it, so it'll be about an hour. Yeah, I'm late. Uh, be about an hour long class. And then um, uh, Hedico's got a key. Nobody else has got a key here, so Hedico's going to have to close up for y'all. But uh, uh, let's see here. We got um, uh, Paul begins chapter 5 with a summary thought concerning the allegory he used concerning the law and grace. The words, stand fast, therefore, and this is something that he says many times in his writing. Stand, 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 stand. All right. He's saying, stand fast, therefore, are an appeal to not be consumed by the false teachers of the Judaizers, but to adhere solely to the grace of Christ who has freed us from the law. Uh, we talk about the Judaizers. They were Jews that were coming into the church at Galatian. They were saying, unless you observe the law of Moses, you know, and are circumcised, you can't be saved and all that kind of stuff. They are the Hebrew Roots Movement people of today. They are the people that have infected churches all over the world. And we need to be very careful of these people. Because they come in and they say that, you know, oh, it's a good thing. We're doing what they did before in Israel, and we're observing the feasts of the Lord. And those things only pictured Christ. Colossians 2, 16, 17, they're a shadow of these things, but the, the substance is found in Christ. And as I said, if you grab a shadow, you get nothing. But if you take the substance, you get the shadow with it. So you get everything in Christ. So we need to be careful. And uh, this, is the, this is the main brunt of Paul's letter to the Galatians is Judaizers. And as I said, today, Hebrew Roots Movement people. It is also inclusive of anybody that adds in works. He talked about works. You know, his father was in the Catholic Church, and we got people that are working their way to heaven. They don't understand that the Bible speaks of grace. We've got the Seventh-day Adventists who are works-based. We've got the Jehovah's Witnesses. As a matter of fact, the, the one defining difference between biblical Christianity and every other system of religion on this planet, every other one of them, is that they are doing something to please God in order to be saved. Christ did something for us in order to be saved, and all we have to do is receive it. That is the defining difference between every religious system on this planet and biblical Christianity. It's the devil's main lie, and he uses it again and again in the hearts of the people of the world. You need to do something in order to be right with the spirit gods, or to be in right with you know, uh, Buddha or Allah or Krishna or whatever. But biblical Christianity says that God has prepared the way. The path is open, and all you have to do is walk through the door, who is Christ. So um, they believed in him. They were sealed, speaking of the Galatians, who Paul had uh, freed, told them freedom uh, in Christ. They believed in him. They were sealed with the Spirit because of their belief and without regard to the deeds of the law. And he was imploring them to stand fast as he says, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. He uses the term us to show that he and all Jews who had come to Christ had been freed from the bondage of the law. The Galatians, who never had the law, went straight from not having it to the more exalted status of being bestowed the grace of Christ. 
Together, both Jew and Gentile were granted a state of liberty because of his work. And as I said, this, this is something that uh, Paul harps on again and again in this particular passage, is that they started with grace, they're going back to the law. Anybody that has been given the gospel and picked up a track or had one sent to them and uh, they received Christ through it, they didn't do anything in order to receive that. It's a gift. It's something that was just, like I say, free, okay? And then somebody comes along in a church, and I don't care if it's the Baptist church right down the road that I used to attend for many years, little Baptist church, I think it's in that direction. Anyway, um, uh, you know, all of a sudden they add in all of this legalism. Things that are not in the scripture, you can't do this and you need to do that. And I don't care what it is. If somebody says, we don't want you doing that in this church and it doesn't match this book, then they are heading down the wrong path very quickly. If they say they don't want you doing something in their life, you know, in your job, that's their right. They can say they don't want you to have this particular thing or that particular thing. And, you know, but if it's something that a church says that you, they don't want you to do, dancing was one of the things they had at the church. You shouldn't be dancing. Okay. Let, <laughs> David danced his heart off before the Lord when the ark was brought into Jerusalem. And we have the fullness of what that ark only pictured. We have Jesus, who is the ark of our salvation. Every detail of that ark pointed to him, all right? Uh, you know, they, they would say, well, you shouldn't be listening to music. And you you got to read this version of the Bible. And it went on and on and on. Anytime you add anything like that into your theology, it's no longer the doctrine of uh, the gospel that you were preaching. You're just making stuff up, and it's harmful, okay? As a heartfelt petition... He finishes the verse with, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The word yoke, Jesus uses it. He, he acknowledges that the law is a yoke. He says, come to me and, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Peter, when talking to the people in Acts chapter 15, calls the law a yoke, a yoke of bondage. Paul says it again and again and again, that we have this yoke which is the law. Why would you want to put that on you? A yoke that Israel was unable to bear for 1,500 years. Why would you put that back on you? And that's what he's calling it here again. All right. He says, do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The Gentiles were never under the law, but they were not without law. Paul discusses this in the book of Romans. Despite not having the law of Moses, they still had a conscience a law all its own, to show them that they were in bondage to sin. That's what the con conscience is. It lets us know that there's something wrong with us, and that's why there are religions all over the world. Even if you've never heard of Christ or Christianity and nobody's ever told you that a Messiah is coming, there are people that devise religions all over this world because they know that there is a disconnect between them and their creator. Okay, that's why there are religions. Some religions used to, uh, down in Mexico, these, these uh, what do you call them, pyramids that are down there. On the top, the uh, guy would take a young virgin up every year and they'd sacrifice her to this god or that god. And, you know, they had all of these rituals in order to uh, try to take care of their sin, to atone for the things that they had done wrong, or to, uh, you know, knowing that there's a disconnect between them and God and they're not getting rain, well, we need to sacrifice another virgin to get more rain or whatever. Um, people know this intuitively, and that is the conscience that we have been given, okay? So they still had the conscience, and they showed them that they were in their own bondage to sin. The law of Moses increased sin. It highlighted sin. 
and it showed how utterly sinful sin is. This is something that Paul says explicitly elsewhere in his epistles. That's not something I made up, all right? Sin is increased by law. If there was no law in the Garden of Eden, it would not have mattered one bit if Adam walked up and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could have eaten it all day long and twice on Sunday, and it would have made no difference. But as soon as the Lord gave the command, and he violated the command, sin entered the world. Okay, and every single thing that has happened bad in this planet is because of that one sin. Then think of the things that we do that are wrong. Multiply, multiply the, the sadness in the world. People like Hitler, they come along and they, they have sin in their lives and they affect literally millions of people just because of something that all started with one person eating of a fruit that he was asked not to in a garden of delight with every kind of fruit that you could possibly imagine in there, surely, and nothing to want for. All he had to do was to worship and serve the Creator, and in fact, he failed to do that. So, uh, in this, it brought an even greater yoke of bondage upon those who were under it, meaning the law of Moses. They went from, you know, not having the law, they went into the law, and as we saw, I mean, they failed the first time. Last week, uh, actually, for the past few weeks, we've been going through what happened with you know, the giving of the law, the terror of the law. The people said, we don't want him to speak to us anymore. You go up on the mountain and you hear his word and you tell us what we want. And while he's getting that law, what are they doing? They're down there within 40 days making a golden calf and praying to it when they had been told not to do it. And the glory of the Lord is right there on the top of the mountain showing him. And so what Moses is going to do this week, he's going to go back up the mountain. He's going to petition for the people. And they are going to, as I said, we're not going to see it in next week's sermon or this Sunday's sermon, but they put such a great yoke on themselves when they accepted the second or the renewal of the covenant but because they didn't just say, yes, we accept what the Lord says. They said, we will do and we will hear. We will first accept whatever he says and we will do it and then we will hear. In other words, na'ase ve nishma. We will, uh, we will apply this to our lives and then we will hear whatever he says, meaning hearken to it. So they put themselves under any constraint that the Lord wanted. And it was after that, not before, we're in the book of Deuteronomy, but after that, in time, chronology, that the Lord gave them the book of Leviticus. And all of the laws for sins and all of the things that they had to do in order to atone for their sins and to uh, make right the things that they do throughout their year and all of the things that they had to do. Some of them were joyous, don't get me wrong, going on a pilgrim feast and feasting with your family and all of that type of stuff was a joyous thing. But at the same time, the Lord said, if you don't do these things, they're required. I mean, just because it's something that's supposed to be a happy, joyous thing, you know, going down for a pilgrim feast, if you don't do it, that is sin unto the Lord. And when you don't do that thing, you have violated the law. And the Lord says, if you don't do these things, and if you don't hearken to me, he introduces Leviticus chapter 26. And he shows them all of the punishments that are going to come upon the people of Israel for not hearkening to the word of the Lord. There's a whole page full of punishments, Leviticus 26. And that was after they had agreed to those things. Then, of course, even after Leviticus, you've got more laws and numbers. You've got them all the way through, and then they didn't pay attention. They were exiled into the wilderness. And then along comes the book of Deuteronomy. And it's not just a repeating of the law. It's an issuing of all kinds of new laws as well. And so they are bound to this. They are bound to this impossible weight of law until they are freed from it by coming to Jesus Christ as a people. The Lord will never reject Israel. That is never going to happen. They stand as a people. They will stand as a people. But 
They will be under punishment until they come to the Lord, as he said with his own mouth, which they will do someday. And when they do that, he will return to them. And he's not coming back to this planet until they do. He'll take us out before that, but his actual return is not going to happen until Israel acknowledges him as Lord. And this is the yoke and the burden that they are under, even to this day. That's a sad thing that they're going through, but why would anybody want to have that put on top of them, especially the Gentiles who never had it in the first place, and yet they want this on themselves? And we're going to see the repercussions of that coming up rather soon in the, uh, the uh, I think it's in chapter 5 here, but for right now, well, we'll go on. Uh, instead of a, going to a law which did this, brought sin on the people that showed him how sinful sin was and so on, he has petitioned them to not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. That's his words. In Christ, they were freed from sin's penalty, and through sanctification, they would be ever more freed from sin's power. Okay? Now, the main thing to understand is they were not under law. They are given the new covenant. In the new covenant, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, I like to say this every week so you don't forget it, God is not imputing sin to man. There is no law in the new covenant. There are things that we're supposed to do, but there is no law. Because if there was law, then we would be imputed sin, the wages of sin is death, and we would die all over again. Hence, two things can be understood from that. Sin is not being imputed. If you are not being imputed sin, then you cannot lose your salvation. It is impossible. Somebody asked me today, well, you know, I, I get this question all the time, and she sent me a question, probably somebody asked her, you know, somebody challenging her on the doctrine of being eternally saved. And she said, well, what if somebody says to you that they uh, are walking away from the Lord and they don't want to believe in him anymore? I said, their unfaithfulness does not in any way negate his faithfulness. And that's the error that pe people make. God made a covenant in the shedding of the blood of his son. And when he made that covenant, he said that if you believe in me, that I will save you. Okay. And from there, he sealed you with the Holy Spirit. When he did that, when he sealed you with the Holy Spirit, it would demonstrate unrighteousness in God if he was to take that away. And secondly, it would show that he didn't know the end from the beginning. He made a mistake by sealing you, knowing that he would have to take that away. That is not the God of the Bible. His and the testimony to that, as I tell people, the testimony that we can absolutely know that this is true is the covenant with Israel. He said, and we're going to see that this week is where this finally comes to a head, that he made a promise that he would never, ever forsake his covenant with them, okay? It doesn't matter what Israel does. It doesn't matter what they do. Even when they are not his people, he is still their God, okay? And that's something we need to understand. He will never break that covenant, and he will bring them into the new covenant. And once they're in the new covenant, they are forever in the new covenant. So, that's, uh, they are a template or a pattern of salvation for human believers, each individual. God will not break that covenant with us, even if we are unfaithful in it. Okay, so, um, thank you. In going back to the law, sin would again gain power over them. Okay, that's what he's saying. If you go back to the law, sin gains power over you. Now, obviously, that is, and I've said this before, if somebody is in Christ and they go back to the law, they're not going to lose their salvation, but they will do a couple of things. One, they will lose their joy because now they're in the yoke of bondage and they're, they're knowing, oh, I forgot to do this and I didn't go to church on the Sabbath and all these things that they think they need to be doing. They have not lost their salvation, but the people that they are instructing, children, family, witnessing to, those people will never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus because they are being presented with a false gospel. 
okay? A heretic can be a saved person, and he's just teaching a heresy. The person that is hearing the heresy will not come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So that's the important distinction to remember there. The Holy Spirit will not work through those who stand contrary to the finished work of Jesus Christ. He cannot. That would contradict himself if he was to do that, as Paul says in the uh, Galatians 1, 6 through 8. A false gospel is a false gospel. Let them be anathema, all right? So that's my words, not his, but he uses the term anathema. He says that is out. The Holy Spirit cannot work in such situations, all right? And I've said this before as well. If you're in a church where a pastor is disobedient to the word, okay, well, for whatever reason, I usually pick on women because they're not supposed to be pastors and teachers. It's explicit in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. So that's an easy one to remember, okay? If a pastor is disobedient to the word of God and he is instructing the people in the church, he cannot be filled with the spirit. He cannot be directed by the spirit. It is impossible because, uh, example, speaking in tongues no more than three and there must be a translator. If there are five people in a church that are speaking in the tongues or there's no translator or both, the spirit is not working through them. It is impossible because the Holy Spirit will never contradict the word that he has given us. This word is sacred. It came from the mind of God, and it was given to us through men of God in order to instruct us. God will never contradict this word in himself or through his people, okay? That doesn't mean that you're not saved if you're, uh, you know, teaching and you're doing something contrary to the word of God, but it means that at the time that you are doing that, you are not filled with the Spirit in whatever capacity you think you are, okay? God will not contradict himself. Life application. The Holy Spirit is the one who testifies of the work of Christ. As Christ fulfilled and thus annulled the law, Hebrews 7, 18, Hebrews 8, 13, Hebrews 10, 9, the law is annulled, it is set aside, it is obsolete. Okay, as he annulled the law, then those who desire to be under the law and follow its precepts will not receive the power of the Spirit for sanctification. If they have never come to Christ in the first place, they have not even been freed from sin's penalty. For them, there is no justification before God and no imputed righteousness from Christ. That is the consequences of not adhering to the gospel and teaching it properly. Okay, and so a person, Paul speaks about another Jesus. He speaks about another gospel, and both of those are not another. They're nothing. Okay, there has to be one true gospel and everything else is false. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins, meaning you're a sinner. He was buried, meaning he was really dead, and he rose again, meaning that he had no sin of his own. If he died for your sins and he rose, showing that he was without sin, then that means that the sin is forever gone. It's buried away. Every sin, past, present, and future, is buried. Okay, and you're not being imputed sin. Hence, you cannot lose your salvation because if sin is the result of, uh, uh, if, yeah, sin is the result of violating the law and there's no law, then you cannot lose your salvation. So it, you can come at that a thousand different ways, but the answer is always going to be the same. All right. Verse 5-2. Indeed, I, Paul, here it is. I was just saying it was coming soon. Well, here's the theater. We're in it. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, I want to qualify this right now. If you are a parent and you take your child and you uh, say, I want my child circumcised when they're a little kid and it has nothing to do with observing the law, 
It doesn't matter at all. There are cultures all over the world that circumcise children, okay? They do it for health reasons. Some do it for cultural reasons, whatever. At the time of Israel, there were people all over the world that were circumcising their children, but it was not of the covenant of Israel, okay? He had a certain uh, establishment of that covenant, especially for Israel. But circumcision in itself is not what Paul is referring to. He's using that as a baseline for the law of Moses because it's the one obvious external thing that anybody could look at and say he is an observant Jew, okay? And people were saying, well, I need to be like that. I need to be circumcised. He said that if you do that, Christ will profit you nothing. And that's exactly right. And you could add in, and I'm not trying to add into the word of God. I'm saying you could take any precept of the law and do that. If you, I, in, once again, I'm not trying to change the word of God. I'm giving you an example here, okay? So uh, if you um, uh, observe the feasts of the Lord, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, there's two different possibilities. One, I'm doing it because I want to understand the culture of Israel. You know, if you go out to a church and they observe the Passover on uh, Passover week and they do that to show you what they did, there's no problem with that. They're not saying you need to do that. They're just simply giving a demonstration. We do that all the time, you know. Um, for countless years in Germany, they had no Bibles, okay? They were expensive and very few people had them and most people didn't read. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, they have had these drama presentations of Christ every single year. The gospel, Christ died, and all these things. That's a presentation. You're learning something through visual means or physical, tangible means. If you're going to a church and they're doing that, that is fine. But if they say, you must observe the Passover, it's the exact same premise here. Paul is using circumcision simply because it is the baseline. It is the most obvious thing in Scripture. As a matter of fact, we can go to 1 Corinthians 7. And I'll show you what I'm talking about here, 1 Corinthians 7, and then we're going to go to um, verse 9 or 8, somewhere, maybe it's 19, I'm, just give me one second to find it here, um, 7. Um, Circumcision uh, is nothing? Yes, 19. 19, thank you. Um, one, oh, I'm in 2 Corinthians, that's why I'm not finding it, duh. Okay, hello, Charlie. Um, let me turn back to there, and uh, 1 Corinthians 7, yeah, all right, hang on, we'll turn there, and yeah, thank you. Um, where is, okay, I'll start at 17, but as God has distributed each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so, are I, so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Nothing wrong with circumcision. I, well, I don't need to talk about me, but, um, uh, okay, there's nothing wrong with it. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. He's talking about adherence to the law. He's not talking about health reasons or any other thing. That's all he's talking about is adherence to the law of Moses. Let him not be circumcised. And here it is. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. And then he says something that's so interesting. He says, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. He just said, keeping the commandments of God is what matters. But what does it say in the book of Leviticus, which is a part of the law of Moses? You must circumcise your child. Circumcision came from Moses. We know that. Even Jesus says that. But the law mandates circumcision. So it goes beyond cultural. It goes beyond the ethnic group of Israel into the law itself. You must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. All right. And he says, keeping the commandments of God is what's important. Well, if circumcision is a part of the law of Moses, everybody got that? And Paul says, 
you are not to be circumcised if you're uncircumcised when you come to Christ, then he cannot be speaking of the law of Moses when he said keeping the commandments of God is what is necessary. Everybody understand that? He's not speaking about the law of Moses. So that is a perfect text to give to the Hebrew Roots Movement people and tell them you are pursuing the wrong direction. Keeping the commandments of God cannot be keeping the law of Moses because circumcision is an aspect of the law of Moses. Okay, so we'll go on. I'll read this again. Um, he says uh, he was speaking specifically adhering to deeds of the law as a means of being pleasing to God. Now he says it, I indeed, I, Paul, he dogmatically asserts under the authority of his apostleship that what he is about to say is to be held to as absolutely assured. This is me, I'm Paul, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus, and it is to be taken as the strictest of doctrine for the new covenant believer. It is he, Paul, who went and first preached to the Galatians, bringing them the message of Jesus Christ, whom he had personally encountered. He was a circumcised Jew and a meticulous adherer to the law of Moses before that day, but now he had come to realize what faith in Jesus Christ meant. Without that knowledge and with his, I'm sorry, with that knowledge and with his divinely appointed commission, he now will give words of warning. They are words which resound throughout the ages in this precious epistle. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Paul uses circumcision as the standard, the baseline for his argument against adhering to the law of Moses. It was so intricately tied up with the law that it was comparable to baptism for the new covenant believer. If one were to say, I will be circumcised in order to please God as the law of Moses says, then it would indicate that the work of Christ in the fulfillment of the law was of no value at all to that person. I got to do something that the law says. Jesus Christ died for my sins. Which am I going to weigh out and find is more precious to me? Well, I'm going to go get circumcised. It means that what he did means nothing to you. You have completely diminished the law of Moses, or I'm sorry, the glory of what Christ did by reinserting the law of Moses into your theology, okay? And then it would indicate that the work of Christ in fulfillment of the law was of no value at all to that person. Circumcision was a sign which only pointed to the coming Christ. I say this at the end of most sermons, but I'll stop right here in case somebody's watching this on YouTube and doesn't watch the sermons. Circumcision was a sign. Okay, the word is ot in Hebrew. A sign is something that points to something else. It is not a thing in and of itself. The Jews treat circumcision as if it is a thing in itself. See, I'm circumcised and therefore I'm righteous. That is incorrect. Circumcision was a sign which pointed to Christ. And what that means is that man sinned. Adam sinned. He was the federal head. Eve was the one that, you know, obviously Paul speaks about that later to Timothy, but uh, Eve is the one that was deceived first, but Adam was the responsible partner here. He is the one through which sin came, okay? Uh, Eve was taken out of the man, the man was given the law, and it was the man who violated the law, okay? So, sin entered the world through Adam. And what that means is that every single person on this planet, because every person on this planet has a father, inherited Adam's sin. It travels from father to child, from father to child. So if you're a girl, you inherited it from your father. If you're a boy, you inherited it from your father. Every person has a father. Sin is traveling through the male. 
whatever it is that transmits, and God created us, he gave us the chromosomes and all of that kind of stuff, whatever is transmitted by the male, it is transmitted with sin in it, okay? That is what the Bible teaches. We all have original sin. Go read uh, Psalm 51, 6, I think. I was conceived in iniquity, okay? I was sinful from birth, David says. So this is what is being conveyed to us in scripture is that man is sinful because man has sinned. And Paul confirms this in the book of uh, Romans where he says death came through man and it spread to all men, implying that all have sinned, okay? And so he speaks about that particular doctrine. Sin is traveling from father to child again and again and again. It's in us and it is an infection in us and we cannot get rid of it, okay? God gave a sign to Abraham. A sign points to something else, the sign of circumcision. And what that means is that on the eighth day, you will circumcise your child, okay, and he will be brought into the covenant. It was a sign of the coming Christ. It didn't do anything. As I said, it's not anything tangible. You can't say I'm circumcised and therefore I'm righteous before God. It was a sign. It came many years after his declaration of righteousness, Genesis 15, 6, and then circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. So, this is for the covenant people. You are the covenant people. Eventually, it became a, a, a matter of law in the law of Moses. And it continued to be done all this time, circumcising the people as a sign of Christ. And then Christ came. Now, Christ was born. And we know that. The Gospel of Luke says that Mary was overshadowed. That's right. She, she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. His father is God. Because his father is God, that means he did not inherit original sin. Cut. The sign is fulfilled in Christ. She is a receptacle of the God-man. The father is God. The mother is a human being. He is the God-man. He's the connection between the finite and the infinite. Okay? He is the one that can transcend time and space. He is the one that came to take away this this burden that we've been carrying for all of these thousands of years. The sign is fulfilled in Christ, and that is what Paul is speaking about. Not about that theology, but about that issue, is that Christ is the fulfillment of the sign, okay? Well, you can't say, I'm circumcised, and therefore I'm right before God. You say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the sign, and I am right before God because of that. That is what's being portrayed here. And to say, I need to go back and be circumcised is to say, it's to diminish everything that God did in Christ. It's to say that his incarnation means nothing, that the circumcision, the picture of cutting the sin nature doesn't matter. I can do better than Christ did. I'm going to show God how good I am by observing the law of Moses. This is the penalty that we will bear if we reject what is being spoken about right here in the book of um, in the book of Galatians. So circumcision was a sign which only pointed to the coming of Christ. Eventually, it became a mandate of the law itself, as he fulfilled the picture which circumcision formed, and as he fulfilled the mandate of circumcision found in the law. Then there was no need for the rite any longer. Now, once again, I'll stop right there because I say we do not need to circumcise anymore. That does not mean that Jews who circumcise, even when they're saved, are doing wrong. Why? Because it is also a cultural part of their life. So a Jew that is saved and has a child, to stay in the cultural bounds of their, their people, 
they will circumcise. They are not doing it to merit God's favor. They are doing it as a cultural thing. We do this with all kinds of things in our own lives. And so you got to be careful when you point fingers at people and say, oh, you're doing this or that to understand the whole picture of who that person is. Okay. If you go to Africa or if you go to Asia and you witness to people, they will continue to do things that you think are very odd. For you to say, well, you need to build a church that looks just like the one in Sarasota, Florida, and you need to worship exactly this time, and you need to wear these clothes and do this and that, which is what the Mormons do. Wherever they go, they build the same crummy little church, and they wear the same black and white clothes, and they get everybody to... There's no point in that, because these people belong to cultures, and Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish people, but he is the Christ of the nations. He's called people out of every nation and every culture and how boring it would be for all of us to be taken up to heaven and to all be standing before him with the same haircut and with the same clothes and to say, worthy is the lamb. He's going to have people of every color and every every possible, you know, garment that they had. You know, these are my special garments. And I know I'm, I'm being symbolic here, but you understand these people are brought out of the nations to glorify God in the way that he created them and the way that he dispersed the nations among the peoples of the world. It's he that decided that language. It's he that decided that, you know, if their eyes are squinty or if they're round or if they're whatever, if they got freckles, he determined those things. And whatever we're going to be like in our glorified body, I do not think that he is going to change us so we are unrecognizable in who we were as human beings on this planet. I could be completely wrong, but when I say he's the Christ of the nations, he is the Christ of the nations. So uh, that's just me. I could be completely wrong on that. That's not in the Bible, but you know, I, I am typing the Revelation commentary right now. I did it many years ago and I'm doing it again, just updating it. And this morning, uh, actually a couple days ago, I typed uh, uh, this one right here. And this is what's been going on through my mind. I'm up to uh, eight one I typed this morning, but back in seven, nine, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Well, if it says that, and they're standing before the throne in heaven, before the Lamb of God, and they're identified by nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, then obviously they have their unique characters even in heaven, okay? I can't read that any other way. Like I said, I could be completely wrong, and he's just saying that that's what they came out of, and you're all identical now, but I don't see it that way. Okay, it's so wonderful to see what Jesus Christ has done and how he has pulled people out of every situation, yet they can still live their lives as they are. And like I said, if you, you're a missionary in another country, kind of the same in England, I mean, there's some differences, but if you go to some of these places, these people have very odd customs. And you think, what are you doing? They're not doing anything unscriptural. They're just living their lives. As long as they're not violating scripture, let them be them. Okay, um, and I'm sure that, you know, these uh, really good mission organizations like the one that uh, Ray and Jess are in, I'm sure that they are told, you are to let them be them. You, you, you know, let them have their traditions and their cultures, but if it's contrary to the word of God, then they need to stop that. Okay, all right, so we'll go on. Um, I'll read that again. Circumcision was a sign, as this is so, it was a right which was to uh, no longer to be practiced for earning points with God. It can be a cultural thing, but when you're doing it in order to earn points with God, you are doing it for the wrong reason. And as Paul says, Christ will profit you nothing. All right. Um, it was no longer a sign of the covenant life. It is a sign of the cultural life, but not a sign of the covenant life. Having said this, Paul's mentioning of circumcision is given in relation to the law. 
He is not saying that someone couldn't get circumcised. Oh, I just talked about that as a cultural aspect of life, nor is he saying that a person couldn't get circumcised as a standard of health as is practiced today. I repeat myself, but I get ahead of myself. For such reasons, there is no limitation or warning. Paul is speaking of being circumcised as a means of obtaining justification in order to, uh, in addition to the work of Christ. If you were saying, I'm going to do this to be pleasing to God, to be justified before God, or to be more holy than that guy over there, it's for the wrong reason. And Paul says that is anathema. Life application. If someone tells you that your uncircumcision needs to be corrected in order for you to be pleasing to God, tell them, circumcision? We don't need no circumcision. We have Christ. Okay, that was from uh, what the movie... Um, well, yes, but it, it came from uh, many years ago. Yes, Sierra Madre, yeah. Sierra Madre. That's right. Okay, uh, you were right. I, I, yeah. Anyway, right. it, um, it came from both of them, but originally from the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah, circumcision. We don't need no circumcision. Okay, five three. Or you know what I would do is I'd say hit the highway, heretic, because you're wrong. Okay, five three. Um, where am I? Uh, five three. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Okay, before I even give my comments, just think of the ramifications of that. Paul says that if you are in a church, Hebrew Roots Movement comes in, they move into town, and you start attending that church, and they say, well, you're not circumcised, you need to go get circumcised. If you want to follow that avenue logically and to its end, its obvious end, you need to do every single thing that the law of Moses mandates. Everything. You cannot say, I'm going to observe the feasts of the Lord, but I'm not going to worship on Saturday. I'm going to have to do it on Saturday. I'm going to have to start it Friday night as soon as the sun goes down, and I'm going to have to do it until Saturday night and the sun goes down. And if I do any of the things in the Levitical law, guess what? Which are, you know, things that we just take for granted we don't need to worry about today. I'm not going to... No, cotton and wool, I was thinking more of the, the, the human aspect. Uh, yeah, things that make you unclean without saying anything specific. You are unclean. You can't go to church because you're a violator of your uncleanness. And I guarantee you, you'll be, you'll be unclean every single Saturday of your life. So you get an excuse to not go to church. But now you're violating, you know, all of these other precepts. But she's right. Wool and linen. Polyester, it doesn't matter. You've got two, two things in your garments, and there's a theological reason why Paul said that, but you have to observe that. It says, you know, don't cut your hair in a certain way. It says that um, uh, maybe that's only the priest, I can't remember. Anyway, um, uh, it, there's, uh, you have to wear tzitzits on your garments, little, uh, you know, uh, tassels at the end of your garments, and there has to be a blue thread in the middle of them, okay? you got to do that. If you don't do every single precept, that is found in the law of Moses, because you said that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, and you told Charlie Garrett, oh, you, you're not right because you're not observing the Passover. You need to do every single one of them. And here's the real catch-all. There is no exception. There is no exception that there is no temple in Jerusalem. You have to sacrifice for your sins, and you're not a priest, so you're in a real dilemma, because it is one codified body of law. James tells us that if you violate one precept of the law of Moses, you have broken the law. You stand condemned before the Lord. That is the penalty of saying, I will be circumcised in order to be more holy than you. Every single precept, and we could just start right now, and you know, um, uh, if um, Tangi, you're married, okay, and uh, Nick dies, guess what? If you don't have a child, you're going to have to marry his brother, right? And he's going to have a child through you to raise up the name of Nick. And that's a part of the law of Moses. 
right? Or if he doesn't have a brother, then you've got to marry his nearest relative. Yeah, maybe your uncle. He might be 87 years old. No, I'm just saying, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm saying this is the law of Moses. You violate the precept and you are condemned. So that's before I even get into the commentaries, I want you to think through. I know it sounds odd, but these are things that were required. She's sitting here quoting them to me. You know, I, this is how important this issue is. And people just flippantly say, I'm going to go to the Hebrew Roots Movement Church and I'm going to start doing these things, which are completely baseless. They're completely, you know, and then I had somebody email me this past week that uh, they're saying that Paul is a heretic and you're not to read the writings of Paul. Maybe I said that last week here in the, in the class. Anyway, uh, and, you know, if you think about it to its logical end, okay, we're going to take out Paul's 13 letters from the New Testament. That's a lot of theology, but we're just going to take them out. Well, guess what? We've taken out Paul, which means we need to take out the book of Acts because Paul and Luke are in the book of Acts together. And Luke is showing the transition from Peter to Paul, from Jerusalem to Rome, from Jew to Gentile, and all of he's showing us this, this transition. So now we've got to take out the book of Acts. And because we've taken out the book of Acts, because Luke wrote it, you have to take out the gospel of Luke because Luke wrote it. And once you take out the gospel of Luke, then you have to take out the other two synoptic gospels because Luke depends on them for his writing, which was much lighter later. And then you have to take out Peter because Peter says that uh, he endorses Paul's writing saying that they are on the authority of scripture. So you've taken that out. You've taken out Peter. You've got to take out John because John speaks of Peter. You no longer have the, the epistles of John. You have to take out the book of Revelation. You have to take out Jude, who was a brother of James, who James supported Peter, and you have no New Testament at all. It's done. So that, that's crazy theology to say, oh, I don't follow Paul. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and we are in the Gentile-led church age. So, I, you know, people say things, and you wonder, what were you thinking when you came up with that doctrine? Just think it through to its logical end. And not only do you not have any New Testament, you have no Jesus at all. All you've got is the shadow, and you've got nothing. So, um, because they want to come up with their own doctrine. They want to come up with their own doctrine and because they want to look more holy than you. That's what it comes down to. I'm better than you because I'm pleasing to God because I've done this thing. I observed the Passover. Okay. Um, so, uh, where was I? Um, uh, yeah, I, I did read 5 3. Okay. So, uh, uh, he says, again, I testify. Uh, did I finish 5-2? Yes, I did. I'm going to start with 5-3 again. Paul now gives a second proclamation as an avowed testimony to the precept he just stated. Taken together. Oh, I didn't even get into it. I've been talking just off the top of my head because it's, you see how much I love the book of Galatians. This is, this is it. This is, this is where the source of our, our righteousness is, is right in the book of Galatians. It is all about Jesus Christ. The Romans is the constitution of Christianity. Hebrews explains the fulfillment of the law by Christ, okay? And so it, it shows you how we don't need that in a different way. But this is really the meat of our doctrine of justification and of righteousness before God is in the book of Galatians, okay? Uh, taken together, they read, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And John, I just quoted it to you. John, I'm sorry, James. James says, if you violate one, you, the law is broken. The entire law is broken. Some scholars see the word again as referring to a time when he preached this word to them, recalling it to mind now. Others see this as a second form of solemn witness. The second seems most likely. One. 
Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, too, and I testify again. He's just reaffirming what he just said in the previous verse because he's so adamant about this precept here. If it sounds like I'm angry here, I'm not. I'm just so excited about this epistle. I literally love what he is telling us because this is the freedom. We were talking, Sergio and I, about freedom in Christ uh, uh, yesterday and how I, I, I won't pick any particular congregation or group of people, but he knows a area where there is this is not taught. All you're taught is that you need to merit God. They do teach the gospel, but then all they do after that is you just need to merit God. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. Well, I'm going to tell you what, you'll never be good enough. You will never be good enough in all of eternity. If you never sin again, you will never be good enough for the merit of Jesus Christ. That's why it is called, begins with a G, ends with E, has ace in the middle. Anybody? Race, I guess, grace. You will never merit it because grace is unmerited favor. We are sinners before a holy God, and he offers us this as a gift. Okay, the pulpit commentary further defines the thought. The word again points not to the substance of the subsequent affirmation, as if you were a it were a repetition of that mode in the preceding verse, which in fact it does not appear to be, but the solemnity with which he makes this fresh affirmation. In other words, he is making two distinct affirmations. One, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Two, every man who becomes circumcised is a debtor to keep the whole law. The two thoughts complement one another. In the act of being circumcised, according to the law of Moses, Christ and the work he accomplished is set aside. Once again, Hebrews 7 verse 18, Hebrews 8 verse 13, Hebrews 10 verse 9, and Colossians 2 14. The law is nailed to the cross. It's done, okay? Christ died on the, the cross. Christ's body was buried. It's giving you a picture. The law died. The law is buried. When he came out, the law stayed in the grave, okay? Anyway, um, in setting aside his work, meaning Christ's work, one then becomes a debtor to the entire law. It is a self-condemning act. First, man is born with a sin debt. I just said it a minute ago, Psalm 51, verse 5. I was conceived in iniquity from my mother. I was, uh, I was sinful from my mother's womb. This is something the law could never remove. The law cannot do it. Christ could because, one, he was born without sin, so he was qualified to take away sin, but then he had to fulfill the law for us, showing that he was, I'm sorry, he was capable, and then he had to fulfill the law showing he was qualified. So he's capable to take away our sin. He lived under the law that you and I already can't merit because we're already filled with sin. He fulfilled the law, and he died in fulfillment of it. It is almost done. No, it is finished. It is complete. All right. Man is born with the sin debt. It's something that the law could never remove. But even more, as I said three times already, James 2.10 says, for whoever shall keep the whole law, the law of Moses, and yet stumble in one point. I forgot to put those tzitzits on my garment today. They fell off yesterday. I stepped on it and tore my garment and my wife didn't sew them on. And now I'm in violation of the law. I don't have the tzitzit on the edges of my garment, and therefore I am guilty, as James says, of all. The law is broken. The fact is that no one can keep the whole law. The need for a day of atonement within the law proves this, because the day of atonement was not optional. It was mandatory. If a person did not abase himself on that day, he would be cut off from his people. Okay, it's a mandatory thing. 
Paul has already shown that no one can be justified by the law in Galatians 3.10. Therefore, Paul's repeated statements are given to emphatically show that falling back on the law, demonstrated by the outward act of allowing oneself to be circumcised, is a self-condemning act. Christ is of no value to such a soul. They will be judged accordingly. Once again, if you're saved already and you're duped into believing this theology, then you are the one that will lose rewards, and you will get zero rewards from that day on. Zero. Because you're trying to merit God's favor, which cannot be merited. You will not be, I'm absolutely certain of this. These people are going to stand before the Lord, saved at a youth rally, you know, youth for Christ or something. They went out and they got saved, and then somebody comes along and dupes them, and the rest of their life, they will get zero rewards. I can be absolutely certain of that because one, they are following a perverse path and two, they are teaching it to others. They're condemning their children or whatever by their poor theology. That is the ramifications of this particular thing here. Okay, they will be judged accordingly. If you're not saved, you're not going to ever be saved following this theology. Bible scholar Ben Gell, he's a German guy, notes that the use of the present tense intimates that the warning is not aimed at isolated acts but that the introduction of a systematic practice involving a virtual transfer of allegiance from Christ to the law. That's what he's talking about. In other words, Paul's note about circumcision, as was seen in the commentary on verse 2, is speaking about being circumcised for the specific purpose of attempting to be justified by deeds of the law. This would then be an external sign, like baptism, is for the follower in Christ. Being so circumcised would then have the intent of showing allegiance to the system of the law. Charlie, you're attending this church for the first time. Have you been circumcised? No, I haven't, sir. Well, you need to be it, or you're not coming back to this church. And if you do, then we will allow you into our congregation. Oh, okay. And I'm going to then, I will then have the intent of showing allegiance to the system of law. That is what the purpose of him telling me to do that is. You need to be obedient to the law of Moses. And therefore, when you do that, you've cut yourself off from the grace of Christ. Life application. Align yourself with the law, and you are bound to the entire law, the dim choice. Allow yourself with, align yourself with Christ, and you are granted the fullness of his grace, the smart choice. Which choice interests you? 5-4. We, yes, we have time for 5-4. Okay. 5-4. Let me read it first. You have become estranged from Christ. Right there. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Right there. It's explicit. I kind of said it in the previous comment right before we finished that verse, but it is explicit out of the hand of Paul. If you do these things, now that doesn't mean a person is saved and he goes into the Hebrew Roots movement and he comes out of it, it doesn't mean that he's lost all hope after that point. He just has to be reinvigorated in Christ, okay? So Christ is a very forgiving Lord. Just read about Israel in the Old Testament one time through, and you'll see that. He's a very forgiving Lord, but he would rather save you all of these griefs and trials and pains by putting yourself under the law in the first place. The words of Paul in today's verse I say today because it was a daily commentary, expand on the thoughts of the previous two verses. If one attempts to be justified by acts of the law, then the result is one, Christ will profit you nothing. Two, you are a debtor to the whole law. These are Paul's words, explaining it so that, oh, wait a minute. Five, four. I 
cut something out of there. Anyway, maybe that was it. That was, that was the first two. Okay, explaining it so that even the doll can understand, he says that such an attempt to be justified by the law causes a person to become estranged from Christ. This means that his fulfilled work, Christ's fulfilled work, and thus the grace of Christ is voided in such a person. Works and grace are mutually exclusive. If someone is working in order to please God, then God's grace has no meaning to them. The relationship of grace is voided by the works and a separation or an estrangement between the parties is the result. This does not mean to not do things pleasing to Christ. That's not what it's talking about. We have all kinds of things that Paul tells us to do in order to be pleasing to Christ. Peter writes some of them. James writes some of them. Jude writes some of them. They're telling us how to live responsibly in Christ. That is not what this is speaking of. This is speaking about earning God's merit by observing the law of Moses. That is what this is speaking about. As this is so, there's this estrangement. Then it shows that this pursuer of the law has fallen from grace. The word translated here for have fallen from is used in various ways. As a nautical term, it means to wander off course or to be cast ashore. One is no longer on the right route or even in the right ship. They are completely separated from the truth. Understanding this, one would think that Christians would cling, literally cling, to the cross of Christ. It would seem that all followers of Jesus would be so grateful of God's grace that they would write about it, sing about it, and cling to it, like that gentleman that you told us about when you first opened us. And yet, how many people simply forget what happened when they called out to him at the beginning? Instead of trusting in grace, they trust in the lies of the devil. In so doing, they reject the only path to God which can bring about peace and harmony. That's it. You've rejected the only point that God has given us for fellowship with him. It's Christ. He said, I am the way. So he's the way. I am the door. He's the door. All of that is shut off from you. All of it. If you go back under the law of Moses or any precept of the law of Moses, trying to be pleasing to God in a way that justifies you. All right. Life application. Right on time. Whatever you add to the work of Christ will be counted as an offense against God. One cannot merit grace, and they cannot earn their place in heaven. Every religion on this planet is trying to earn their place in heaven. Every plant, every religion, every one of them. And yet God says, I'm offering it to you freely. I'm just giving it to you if you'll accept it. And that's the hardest thing of all. You have to take yourself, which has been conditioned in your own conscience, to do something right before God and say, it's not good enough. We don't want to feel that way. We want to feel that I'm good enough. Oh, look at that bad guy over there. I'm up here and he's down here. And look at that guy over there. I'm way above him. And you're on a bell curve. It doesn't work that way. There is no bell curve. There's no merit highway. There's nothing you can do to earn the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing except receive Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do. So um, I would ask you today to call on Christ, to live for Christ, to do what is said in the New Testament, the covenant, the new covenant. I call it the Christ covenant because he's the one that shed his blood. It's not a covenant of bulls and goats. It's a covenant of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God. And that's what we're going to be celebrating here. I know it's his birthday wasn't 25 December, but we celebrate it on 25 December. Just so everybody knows, in case you've never heard this, 25 December is the birthday of Jesus Christ. He came out of the womb 
in this, the uh, fall time, Rosh Hashanah. That's what the Feast of Teruah, Yom Teruah, is signifying. It's a picture of Christ's birth. You back that up, 270 days, which is the gestation period for a woman, and guess where you come? About 25, as a matter of fact, it happened, I think, eight times in the past 100 years. 25 December was that day. So there, that, that time of the year, when everybody else is observing their pagan festivals, and like when Christ came out of the ground, they're all observing their pagan festivals, they missed the mark. Christ came out of the ground, not the, the corn. That's not what we're worshiping. Well, Christ was incarnate at this time of year, and that's what we are signifying. And funny enough, Hanukkah, which comes much later in the, uh, the uh, Jewish tradition, you know, at the time of the Maccabees, the Festival of Lights. Christ, the light of the world. I mean, God foresaw all of it. It was all laid out before him, and he knew those things would happen. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who came, child born in a manger, a child that was destined to die for the sins of the world. And it's offered by grace. He did the work, all of it. The difficult part is done, and all we have to do is set aside our own pride, our own arrogance, and just receive what Christ did. Thank you for the Christmas child who did these things for us, the glorified and risen Lord who sits there waiting for us to respond to the call. Thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Lord God. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in his beautiful name. Amen. Okay, let's say goodbye to the folks online. Go break.